Go and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel 9. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 9 through 11 today. Three whole chapters. A bit much, I know. But uh, I think you'll, it'll make sense as we go. But if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our hosts will provide a Bible for you. You can find 1 Samuel 9 on page 231 in those Bibles. Because we're covering so much text today, it'll be helpful to have an open Bible in front of you. If you're new to looking at a Bible, and if you don't have one, that, that Bible is a gift to you. And, uh, but the big numbers on the page are chapter numbers. The small numbers are verse numbers. And I'll be referencing various passages pretty quickly today because we won't have time to go through all of it. But 1 Samuel chapter 9 through 11 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, One of the worst things in life is when something looks good on the outside but lacks substance on the inside. Looks good on the outside but lacks substance on the inside. Maybe you've played the game where there's uh, on the table in front of you, everything looks like a caramel apple. But some of them are actually carameled onions. This is a good youth group game. So you go to bite in, you're expecting a caramel apple, and you bite that into that, and you might get lucky, or you're going to bite into a carameled onion. All of us can kind of feel that's not exactly what I hope for. Look great on the, in, on the outside, but on the inside, that lacked the substance that I was looking for. In just a few weeks, all of our, many of our favorite holidays is coming up for Thanksgiving. And imagine, you know, your favorite food on Thanksgiving being before you on the table. What looks like a perfectly roasted turkey is then cut up and it's dry on the inside or it's underdone. You know, what what seems like your favorite piece of pie actually had way too much salt in it and it doesn't quite go well. Some of you have purchased homes before where everything looked great, great curb appeal, right? But then on the inside, there was significant foundational problems and you were stuck. Nothing worse than that. But there's nothing worse sometimes than when things look look great on the outside, but they look bad or they're actually bad on the inside. And and this is bad for food and it's awful for homes, but it's even worse when it's a person. For any of you who have to filter through resumes or taking job applications, sometimes you'll get a resume that has all the right school. Somebody applies and they have all the right schools, right? GPA. Everything looks great on paper. They've even had some wonderful experiences. But then you sit down with them for an interview and realize this person is a dud. <laughs> they look great on the outside, but there's no substance. They can't hire you. Can't, they're not going to get a job with you because they lack substance on the inside. There's not much between the ears. Some of you have gone on a first date. <laughs> he or she looked great. Yeah, I want to spend some time with that person. I can't wait to to be around them. And all of a sudden you sit down with dinner and you kind of go, yeah, what? Check, please. Can we get out of here soon? (laughs) Nothing worse than when somebody looks straight on the outside, but they lack substance on the inside. And and obviously that's bad for food. It's, It's expensive for a home. It's annoying for a resume or a date. It's awful for a leader. It's awful for a leader. When, when somebody looks good on the outside, but they lack substance on the inside, for a leader, we realize that's a terrible thing. But that's exactly where we are today in 1 Samuel chapter 9. See, in 1 Samuel 8, we discussed how the people had turned leadership into an idol. And by, by demanding a king, they had rejected the Lord. 
They, they no longer trusted that Yahweh could fight for them. So they, they no longer trusted that Yahweh could truly lead them. And they demanded, give us a king. They wanted a king to be, to conform like the other nations. And they wanted a king who would fight their battle. So God said, fine. So, so through Samuel, he said, warn them that they'll get that king. But warn them, Samuel, that the king that they're going to get is not the one that they need. They're not going to get a king who serves. They're not going to get a righteous king. They're, they're going to get a king who seeks for himself. He's going to acquire lots of resources for himself. He'll, 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 hurt, he'll work on the backs of the people that he's meant to lead. They're going to cry out and wish for another king, and I'm not going to listen. Samuel warned them, and Samuel did that. And still they said, no, we shall have a king over us that we may be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And God says, fine, I'm going to give you just what you ask for. But the people's king does not compare to the divine king. The people's king that they want in their image does not compare to the, to the divine king that they truly need. So in these three chapters today, we're kind of walking through this as almost as if it's three acts in a play. And, and part of what this text introduces is the tension that we all wrestle with in the text and in our own culture of how is God sovereign, his plan and perfection, providence. He's making all things take place in our world. How is God sovereign and yet ridiculousness reigns. How is God sovereign and yet leaders seem to be so deficient? How is God sovereign and he's using not just deficient leaders but immoral leaders to accomplish his purposes? There's a tension in the text and when there's a tension in the text the best thing to do is leave it. Don't cut it. And the tension that we feel today is God's sovereignty over incompetent, deficient and moral leaders. God, John Piper writes this. He says, As God inaugurated the kingship of Israel, sinful as it was for them to wish to be like the other nations, the fabric of his king-choosing power was on display. Essentially, what Piper is saying, he goes, the, the people are held accountable. Their, their, their request for a king was sinful, and yet God remained sovereign over all of these circumstances. We know that God is in control. Daniel chapter 2 talks about God raising up and tearing down kings. In Isaiah 19, we see that both Egypt and the Amorites are even servants of God, that God is working through them. So when we come to a text like 1 Samuel 9 through 11, there's two primary things I want us to consider before we even get into the point. All this is still introduction. You're welcome. But the first thing we need to see is what is God doing? What is God doing? The Bible is primarily a book about God. And a, a good Bible study question for us to always ask is what do I see God doing? What is he concerned with? What are uh, descriptions of his character? What do we learn about God? So in light of that, for today, each point, you'll notice, has something about God's sovereignty. God is sovereignly doing something even in the midst of of sinful choices, and even in the midst of deficient kings. But what do we learn about God's sovereignty? 
The second thing we want to ask ourselves as we introduce a text like this is what do we learn about the people's king? What do we learn about the people's king? How is he a representative of the people? What is it about his character or deficiencies that even reveals the deficiencies of the character of the people as well? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says these things, these Old Testament things were written as an example for you. So we have to be able to say there's examples for us to follow or to reject here as well. So what are some examples for us as we look at this? So God's sovereignty and then the people's king. What are we learning about both of them? So again, these three chapters or these three sections really are kind of like three acts of a play. And we'll go through those one by one to see both what God is doing in what God is doing through their king. First act, number one, God sovereignly anoints a deficient king. God sovereignly anoints a deficient king. Chapter one begins with a critical genealogy and description of a new main character in the book of Samuel. This is where we get introduced to Saul. Chapter nine, verse one says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zehor, son of Behorath, son of Apatha, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here we have Saul, a man of Benjamin, of that tribe. And already we should notice that's not really a good thing. Because we know through previous prophecy that the leader, the king, was supposed to come from Judah. And in the end of the book of Judges, the the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin, are actually at war with the other 11 tribes. The the Benjamites were not good. They were rebellious people. So when the leader is coming from the rebellious people, our antenna should go up and go, that doesn't seem to be like a good thing. In any case, though, maybe the people can get over his background based on his looks and his wealth. He's a wealthy, good-looking dude. He is more handsome, more attractive, and he's taller than anyone else in the nation. But notice what the text does not say. It says nothing about his character. It says nothing about his competence. It doesn't say that he had a heart after the Lord or that the Lord was always with him, that he was faithful in all that he did. No, all we see is that he's tall and handsome. He is more qualified to walk down a runway than he is to lead a people. He's a beautiful little idiot, essentially, is what we'll find out later. (laughs) Because he's deficient. The text begins to indicate his deficiencies. He's tall and good-looking, but he's incompetent. We notice this in two ways. First, we see that he cannot perform a simple task. Cannot perform a simple task. As the text goes on in verse 3, it says that Saul's dad sent him out to find donkeys, and he couldn't find them. First uh, Samuel 9, verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. This is funnier in the King James Version of the Bible. In any case, he goes out to find the donkeys. And three times in his next series of verses, it says he can't find them. Can't find them. They're nowhere to be, be found. A simple task wouldn't be all that difficult to track donkeys, but he wanders all over the place and he can't find them. One commentator says, if Saul cannot keep track of his family's donkeys, how can he possibly lead the nation? He's not competent in a simple task. He's deficient. 
The next way that Saul is deficient for the task is, or for the task of leadership is that he doesn't plan well for this trip. After a while, um, he gives up, he wants to give up looking for the donkeys and go home. He says, my dad is probably more concerned about me than he is the donkeys. He says to his servant, let's just go home. But it's the servant who says, well, you know, Saul, we're in, a, in an area pretty close to this man of God. Samuel's not mentioned by name, but the servant knows that a man of God, a prophet, is relatively close. Why don't we go ask him if he, if he can help us find these donkeys? Again, another interesting note, it's, it's noteworthy that well, Saul's not the one who, one, has this idea. He may not even be aware that the prophet is close by. But secondly, he's not prepared. He says, well, I don't, have any, I don't have any money to be able to offer the prophet when we go. It was customary in that day to give the prophet some kind of financial gift, not as a, like a payment necessarily for anything, but it just as a sign of goodwill, a sign of, 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 of offering, of respect. And Saul's got nothing. But notice who has something. The servant does. The servant has just enough. Already we're noticing that Saul's servant is being cast in a better light than Saul is. Again, he's a beautiful little airhead. He's not, he's not prepared and he can't perform a simple task. And yet still we see God's sovereign and providential hand even through these missing donkeys. Eventually, Saul makes his way to Samuel. Verse 11 says that they go to the city. They ask about the man of God. And in verses 11 through 14, they have these interactions with these young women who say, Here, there's, there he is, he's offering sacrifices. But we get some interesting commentary in this text to know that Samuel was well prepared for Saul's inquiry. He was, he was well prepared for Saul showing up. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9. Now, the day before Saul... Came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So already we see God working behind the scenes. In the midst of Saul's deficiencies, in the midst of his inadequacy, in the midst of his lack of preparation, God is still working. Saul might be deficient in many ways, but he's not entirely worthless. Before Samuel could, uh, tells Saul anything about being king, Samuel tells him, your donkeys are okay, they've been found. And then Samuel invites Saul and his servant over for a meal later in the evening. And Saul gets the, the seat of honor and the choicest of me. Now, admit, again, we, we have some indications here that obviously there's something unique going on with, with Saul's representation. But maybe he's just that much of an airhead that he's got no clue any of this is going on. Not asking any questions. Well, why would I be, receive this kind of treatment? Maybe he's just thinking he got lucky by getting the prime rib that night. I don't know. And still, God is working. So they go to bed, wake up the next day. Saul, or Samuel tells Saul's servant, go ahead and pass along, because he wanted to have a private conversation with Saul to reveal to him what the Lord had spoken. And this is where we see in chapter 10, verse 1, this private anointing. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. 
And this is a bombshell statement in 1 Samuel. Samuel was telling Saul, you are going to be the one through that God allows that through you, God is going to protect. God is going to deliver the people through your hand. He, he, he's, the prophets are going to confirm this. And this is later on, he continues to give some indications about here's how you're going to know that, that the Lord is with you. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 6. Samuel said, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. For God is with you. Samuel promised Saul, not only are you being raised up, set apart, anointed for this kind of ministry, but God himself will be with you. The Holy Spirit of God will empower you for this ministry. Now, I don't think that this indicates any kind of salvific moment here for Saul. I think we, as we see the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament, typically it's often to, to empower uh, an individual, particularly a leader, for a specific kind of ministry. I think it's what we see going on right here. But then in verse 9, we see this word confirmed. When he, that is Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And these signs came to pass that day. Saul had the confirmation, the fulfillment of God's word through the prophet that the Lord would be with him. He's even found among the prophets prophesying. But an interesting take here is to say, you notice who's most surprised that Saul is among the prophets? His own family. His own family is surprised to see Saul among the most spiritual people of that day. Now, this is an argument from silence. We don't totally know. But it's an interesting note just to think, did they know enough about Saul's character and competence that being around spiritual people was a surprise? And still, Saul had this confirmation of God's word. God has anointed you. He's empowering you to this ministry. And yet when his own uncle says, so what did Samuel say to you? Saul said nothing. What, what, what did the man of God, what did the prophet of God say to you in a private conversation? Not everybody gets that, Saul. What did he say to you? Oh, not much. Just where the donkeys were. See, as we think about Saul's life, we already see him beginning to, running, to begin running from his responsibility. This is not a measure of humility. It's a measure of rebellion. So, so far, though, what do we learn in this text? Well, two, two things. First, Israel was getting the king that they wanted. They were, they were getting the king that they wanted. They, he was good looking. He was wealthy. He looked great on the outside, but he was deficient and incompetent on the inside. And brothers and sisters, this is why character and competence matters in leadership. Never sell your soul for a leader who lacks integrity. Never attach your wagon to a leader who lacks character. For character and competence are the most important. The heart of the leader reveals the heart of the people. The people were getting the king that they wanted. One just like them. Who was deficient of competence and character. Secondly, we see God sovereignly working over these circumstances. God sovereignly working to raise up a leader. Theological statement that Romans 13 verse 1 gives us. A passage maybe we should all memorize as Christians. Romans 13, 1. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is some authority that's not from God. Not what it says. For there is no authority except from God. Hear that? Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Let me ask, just real frankly, in the quietness of your own heart, do you believe that statement? That there's no authority except from God. Even deficient authority. Even a moral authority. No governing authority exists outside of the sovereignty of God. That doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean they're beyond critique. Doesn't mean that they're a good authority. And yet, God remains sovereign. Can we be the kind of people and the kind of church who trust in the Lord in the midst of deficient, incompetent leaders? So the people were getting the king that they want. God had sovereignly anointed a deficient king. And we might think, well, how can, you get, how can it get any worse? The rest of chapter 10 proves that it does. The Lord sovereignly anoints a deficient king and he sovereignly confirms a hiding king. This private anointing now goes public in confirmation. Our second act here is God sovereignly confirms a hiding king. Look at chapter 10, verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distress. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your thousands." Samuel reminds the people, God says, that God says, I had brought them out of the land of Egypt. The most significant act of redemption in the history of Israel was through bringing them, redeeming them out of slavery from Egypt. And God says, I did that. You didn't. God says, I delivered you from the, from the hands of the kings of all of your oppressors. You didn't do that. I did. God says, I delivered you from all of your calamities, all of your frustration, all of your chaos. I delivered that. And still the people rejected. So as, as a symbol of their rejection, God was placing and confirming the king that they desired. So he divides them up according to their tribes, according to their clans, and then they go through this elaborate process of casting lots. Casting lots in the Old Testament was a way of discerning God's will. It's not prescriptive for us at all today. In the New Testament, we only see it in the early parts before the book of Acts you know, really gets going. So we don't see that as a prescription for us at all. But in the Old Testament, it was a way of discerning God's will and his action. So the lots are capped and first the tribe of Benjamin is called out. And then they're cast again, and the clan of the Matrites is called out. And then finally, the lot fell on Saul, the son of Kish. This was the king. This should have been an exciting, elaborate process, a day of national rejoicing. All right, we have our king. This is more sophisticated and more celebratory than potentially picking a speaker of the house in our day. I'm not sure. But they have their king. Hooray! But... A time that should have been 
a moment of national excitement and pride turned into be a national embarrassment. Look at chapter 10, verse 21. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? Essentially asking, are you sure, Lord, we got this? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. We can feel some of the sarcasm in the midst of this, right? They can't find him. So they have to ask again, Lord, are you sure? And, and then he comes and he's, he's taller and more handsome than everybody else. And, they, and, and Samuel, we can almost hear his, the sarcasm in his voice. This is the king the Lord has chosen over you. Long live the king. This tall, scaredy cat doesn't really galvanize a nation. What do we make of Saul's hiding? What do you think is going on with Saul's hiding? There are some who would suggest that Saul's hiding really is just a, a moment of humility. He, he'd rather be in the background and he doesn't want to unnecessarily assert himself. But I don't think that's the case at all. Because a failure in leadership is not humble. It's disobedient. A failure in leadership, a hiding from one's responsibility and divine call is not a moment of humility. It's disobedient. It's rebellion. The Drayson Truth Study Bible notes it this way. This is not an act of humility on Saul's part. Saul is hiding from his responsibility. Samuel already anointed and commissioned Saul and proved the divine authenticity of that message. Saul's hiding is irresponsible. He is running from his divine appointment. See, when the lot fell on Saul, he had the opportunity to be able to say, yes, everybody, God has called me to be king. He's anointed that through his, private, through his prophetic word. That's been confirmed there in my own experience. And now before all of your eyes, it has been clear that I've been called to be king over you. And I submit to the lordship of God and to, to the service of you in this new role. He had that opportunity. In that he rebelled, he ran away, he hid. See, hiding from the Lord or from our responsibility is never a good thing. Whatever the Lord through his word has, has uh, commissioned us to be in our various roles and responsibilities as God's people or in our families or in workplaces, whatever. If we're hiding from our responsibility, that reveals sin, not humility. Think of the first place in the Bible where we see somebody hiding, hiding. Genesis chapter 3, right in the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate of the tree that they were committed not to. And their eyes were open. They were, uh, knew that they were naked, even though that had not been a problem before. But their shame was the result of their own sin, of their own rebellion. So they hid. They hid from each other, and then they hid from the Lord. Genesis 3 verse 8 says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
See, hiding ourselves from the Lord or from our responsibilities always reveals our sin. Those who sin hide from God and hide from our responsibilities that God has called us to. And what the author of 1 Samuel is telling the people then, and what he's telling us now is that I'm going to provide, God is providing a king for you. That's right. But I'm providing a king for you more like Adam than like me. I'm providing a king for you who will hide from his responsibilities. I'm finding a king for you who will hide from my presence. I'm finding a kid, a king who hides, not one who fights or protects. Adam, too, had rejected his responsibilities. Adam, too, had hid from the Lord in his sin, and so is Saul. But Samuel closes this section by explaining the rights and privileges of the king. He then dismisses everybody to go to their own home, and we see two different responses. In chapter 10, verse 26, it says, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So there were some guys who the Lord had touched and they went with Saul. They said, you know, for whatever reason, they saw the nation as being more important than any particular king. And they were going to do their best according to their gifts to carry on God's promises. They recognized that this is the Lord, the king that the Lord had provided for us. And they were men of valor. They were willing to fight. They became like a standing army for Saul. But there were others there that are called worthless fellows. Their lack of trust in Saul was not indicated as a good thing. After that election, they were the ones carrying the signs, not my king. And yet notice they're called worthless fellows. Saul's even told, do away with them. And he says, not yet. He refused, like, see, like, um, what we can learn here is kind of like, like David later when later on in the series when we finally get to these stories and the rest of the book of Samuel. But like David when he's in the cave, he refuses to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul might be a deficient, immoral, lack of character and competence king, and yet he's still the Lord's anointed. And there's still something to be said there for the type of respect and honor that any leader should be going by nature of their position recognition of God. Again, not perfect, but still God's chosen. So we're through those first two acts. God has anointed a deficient king. He confirms a hiding king. So now what will this deficient hiding king do when he's facing a leadership crisis? And that's our third act today in chapter 11. But God sovereignly defeats his enemies through an imperfect king. God sovereignly defeats his enemies through an imperfect king. Saul is not a great individual. Some would think that Saul starts off good and simply gets worse over time. I simply believe that Saul starts off bad and only gets worse over time. However, though, in chapter 11, we see Saul's first leadership crisis, and we see how he responds, and we see some good things that come out of this. Chapter 11, verse 1, describes the setting of this crisis. It says, Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Gabeth's Gilead, and all the men of Gabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. So essentially, this Ammonite is coming against this Israelite city and they're trying to negotiate some terms. Verse two, but Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you 
that I gouge out all your eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel. Uh, anybody signing up for those terms? Essentially, the Israelites knew this guy's not here to negotiate. He's here to destroy. And it leads them to, to weeping. It leads them to mourning. Uh, there's a, this is a major situation. Well, Saul finally finds out about it. Now, he's out in the field with the oxen. And we're not sure exactly if that's a good thing or not. Is he simply humbling, doing whatever needs to be done? Or is he uh, uh, abdicating his rightful place as um, ruler? But in any case, he's furious and he decides to act. Look at verse 6 of chapter 11. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come after, out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. The Holy Spirit rushes on Saul and, and unites the people. Saul has this righteous indignation against the enemies of Israel. So he, he cuts up these oxen that he's behind, sends them out to the people and says, this is what's going to happen if you don't come after me. Now, again, it's kind of difficult to know if that's a good or bad sign. Was there another way that you could have done, uh, done that rather than a very vivid illustration there? In any case, the people come out as one man. The text says that more than 330,000 people responded to this situation. They were going to respond truly and fully, and they were victorious over the Ammonites. This led to a renewal of the kingdom and relatively early in Saul's reign. So they even bring these worthless people who were skeptics of Saul's leadership, and they say this in verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal. And they renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the high watermark of Saul's leadership. He doesn't exercise vengeance. He gives the Lord credit. He offers offerings. They worship. And we see God sovereignly working through an imperfect king. God was still sovereign despite the leadership deficiencies of the king that they had. But what commentators know is that this wasn't just a physical victory. There's also a spiritual victory that's taking place here as well. Some indications here from the text that give us that. The, the, the one who came out after them, that Nahash, the Ammonite, well, Nahash means serpent or snake. Why is that significant? Remember, if we go back to that same text where Adam was hiding, and we remember that it was the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell, well, in Genesis 3.15, we get this, this hint there that somebody is going to finally end the one who tempts. Someone is going to finally end the serpent. This is a great uh, gospel reminder, even in the middle, the beginning of the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15 says this, To the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, a seed of the woman is going to come and is going to end the serpent. 
It's going to end death and destruction. And as we read from Genesis 3.15 on through the rest of the Bible, we're asking ourselves that question, who is that man? What we learn in 1 Samuel chapters 9 through 11 is that God can defeat the serpent through an imperfect king, through an unrighteous king, through an incompetent king, through a good-looking idiot, God can defeat his enemies. And if God can do that with an imperfect king, how much more can he do with a perfect king? The one who no one is surprised that he's among the prophets, because of course he'd be in his father's house. The, the one who, who, who his lineage is truly of the tribe of Judah, for he's the son of God. The, the, the one who's, there's no question of his moral character and his competence, for he is full of grace and truth. He's empowered completely by the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of his ministry. You see, if God can defeat his enemies through an imperfect king, how much more can he do through the son of God, the perfect righteous king? See what? What this text, what these three chapters remind us of, they're foreshadowing the perfect King Jesus who comes and doesn't just, who doesn't just change our circumstances or who doesn't just fight our earthly battles, but one who fights our spiritual battle. One against sin and death. The battle that every human being faces on the planet. The perfect King comes to win that victory. The perfect King comes through his death and resurrection from the dead, he fights for us. God sovereignly works through the person of Jesus to be the true king that we really need. See, what have we been reminding ourselves in this series? The whole time, the title, there's no other king. And a text like this reminds us that there's no other king but Jesus. Think, I often think, and I've thought a lot about it in this series, think about the early church. The early church who would have been persecuted by everybody. The Jews hated them. The Romans didn't like them. They were thrown to the lions. Their businesses were taken away from them. Their homes were burned. And yet the king that those early believers were most concerned about was not the king on the throne of their region, but the king on the throne of their hearts. That despite who ruled over them, emperor after emperor who would persecute, arrest, and kill. Despite who ruled over them, they trusted in the sovereign, perfect King Jesus who lived, died, and was coming again and who ruled over them. To let you into a little secret, there's a real reason that we're in 1 Samuel right now and there's a reason we'll come back here at some point in 2024. Because we need reminded, like those early Christians did, of who's really on the throne. And my prayer is that we would not be the kind of people who would be tossed to and fro by politicians, leaders who make promises, leaders who will come and go, but that our trust is in the perfect eternal king who has fought our battle for us. Brothers and sisters, what would it look like if the people of grace had that kind of confidence in our king? How would we live different? How do we pray different? How would we love one another different? How would we share the gospel all the more confidently because our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. The people's king would never measure up. But the divine eternal king, he's the one we need. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that you are sovereign over all things. And Lord Jesus, you are the King who reigns and rules, who will come again. God, make us to be those kinds of people. Because we have a a righteous king, we can live in security. Because we have a righteous king, we can live with hope. Because we have a righteous king, we can be those who love one another. God, we ask that you would forgive us for our lack of trust. We ask that you would forgive us when we tend to place our hope in idols. Remove those from us, Lord, so that we might hope only in you, the true king. In Jesus' name, amen.